Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we have Krieg Skabur, a guy I had raced with for a long time, absolutely wonderful guy from South Africa, now in the U.S., six-time Paralympian, four-time world champion, four-time Los Angeles marathon winner, nine-time Honolulu marathon winner. I think he kept doing that so that he'd get that trip back to Honolulu every year. Uh, a 2007 SB Award nominee, a 2015 SB Award winner, two-time Paralympic medalist, two-time New York City Marathon winner, six-time Peachtree 10K winner, and two-time Kona Ironman winner. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Mm, lovely to be with you. Thank you for the invite. And you know what? I have to say, in my, I've known you for a long time, in my research, I figured out that I had been pronouncing your last name incorrectly all of these years. Also, I mean, it's the easiest thing. <laughs> How can you mispronounce that? Well, Skabur. I think that, that so many of the Americans have, have been calling Shabor as opposed to Skabor. Like school, right? S-C-H, like school. Yeah. S-C-H, Skabor, yes. Okay. But, All you right. know, but, but, you know, uh, it's, it's fine. I, I, I respond to either way. <laughs> You're getting Americanized in, in coming here. So can we take a little bit of a step back? Because I know you as a racer, and but I didn't realize, you know, I knew some of the story that you were in Angola when you lost your legs, and then you got into, into wheelchair racing. Why, why did wheelchair racing captivate you so much? Well, good question. Um, okay, so I was in 1987 was my accident. Um, then uh, 80, end of 87, 88, I was in uh, one military hospital in, in Pretoria. Uh, and then as part of my rehab, you know, my, my uh, OTs and the PTs, they took me to basketball and to swimming events and to um, uh, track and field. The day they took me to track and field event, I saw the guys, you know, went around the track in the racing chairs. And that was still the four-wheeler days. The four-wheeler, but it's like the, at the end of the four-wheeler days, I can remember vaguely, I almost think there was maybe one guy in a three-wheeler, but you know, everyone thought, no, it's not going to last for long. But anyway, so I watched the, this race and I thought, man, that is something I really would like to do. Uh, so I started racing from uh, the hospital to the rehab center myself. I just raced myself in my day chair. And it was three, three K. 3K. So that, okay. Yeah, 3K. And that old crow molly, big hospital chairs, that's what I mean. I gunned it I, every day. Went, well, not every day, as much as I could. I, I, I did it. I didn't jump in the van. I just went in the, in the day chair. So this I is like the 50-pound day chair that you're talking about kind of thing. Those, yeah, heavy, heavy dudes, yeah. And, uh, and uh, after I went home, um, we, uh, um, I went to do a lot of fun runs. 3Ks and 5Ks with running events, you know. So I would race the runners. And I always, I, I love to race the runners, you know. It doesn't matter where we went. I just wanted to race someone. Uh, and that's how basically slowly it started developing. And then I, I found a friend of mine that worked for an engineering company. Um, and they said that they will make me a racing wheelchair. And, um, 
and that's uh, the beginning of uh, a long, a long history of racing. So, was your first wheelchair your first racer? Was it a four wheeler or was it a three wheeler? I didn't believe in three wheelers then, still, you know, because I, you know, mostly uh, was four wheelers, and I and I had a sports and spokes, and in the sports and spokes, it was still more four wheelers. Um, so uh, we built this chair. It took a long time to build this chair, right? Because it was all from new. And uh, I had um, a friend of mine helping me a little bit with the design of it and, um, uh, you know, the camber and the wheels. And I bought two front wheels from Sopur in Germany. Um, that was the big thing I needed, you know, the front wheels. We made a steering. And so I got the chair. Finally, I got the chair. And... Um, the day I got it, we also, um, I mean, it was everything, the last, but everything just happened in time. But the steering wasn't finished, but we had to go do a marathon in Welcome. Welcome is near Bloemfontein in South, South Africa. So it was about a 10-hour drive in the car to get there. So me and my buddy, he's also in a chair. He was actually my mentor those days. What is his uh, name? Uh, Andres. Uh, Andres Hauck. Okay. And uh, yes, and so we jumped in the car. We we went to his friend that was making the the, the steering of the chair, the fork and the steering. It wasn't really a fork; it was just a, a steering with something to hold the wheels on. We got in the car. We 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 stopped there. Got the steering. I drove up to um, to our destination, and uh, that following morning, I I you know put everything together for the first time, and I didn't have a seat cushion. I, yeah, I couldn't find a seat cushion. So I just, the hotel had uh, like those vanity seat cushions, you know, a little fancy one. And I grabbed one of those. That was my seat cushion. <laughs> so it had little, little ties and I tied it to the back of it. And uh, very, very fancy. And uh, I got in it and the other guys was just warming up and getting ready for the race. And the race was no, the next, the following day. And I was all over. I mean, they laughed at me. They said, he's never going to finish that race. Um, the next day come, and I mean, I was literally, I mean, I was all, I couldn't really control it. You know, it was the hipping. I had to get used to all that. And it wasn't a, a self-centering steering. It was where you steer, it stays there, doesn't matter what. There was no spring loaded or anything. So you just go straight where you, where you leave it the last time, that's where it's going to go. <laughs> So you're all over the road. Yeah, so I'm yeah, I'm all over. But next day we did the marathon, and um, uh, during the marathon, actually a sandstorm came up, and it was very windy and a lot of sand, and I was all over. I mean, it was way back as well, and I promised myself I'm gonna I'm gonna finish this race, but I'll never do a marathon again. I, I just want to get back to the car and back to the house, and I'll I'll trash this racing chair. And, uh, yep, you know, I think I've seen, said that to myself many times after the fact as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm still doing it. How many uh, marathons have you done? You said you'd never do another one. How many have you actually done? Yeah, you know, I would say maybe 200, you know, in 30 years of racing, probably cl close to 200 marathons. A lot. Oh, like I used to do a lot of marathons then, you know, it was no, you know, you have so much energy and you, you never feel like you're overtrained because you're so young, but you always, you are basically always overtrained, <laughs> but you don't, you know, you just, you just keep going.
yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, good experiences. So you have those experiences in South Africa. And then mm -hmm. in 91, you ended up going to Europe for six months to go train. Like this was when you sort of announced yourself to the world. How did you make that happen? I mean, it's like looking out in your bio, it's like, oh, well, he went to Europe and he raised for six months. That makes sense. But the logistics of getting from South Africa to Europe, of finding a place to stay or places to stay and funding the whole thing. How did you make that yeah. happen? So in 1990, I got a, uh, the military sponsored me a racing chair. So they, they gave me a, a pretty decent sopur, it was custom fit, you know, I measured myself. So, um, but, and that was a th the three-wheeler. Okay? So you made it yourself. What do you mean by that? That you no, made no, it the, yourself? The first one, no, this was a sopur, it was a, uh, they made it, Germany. Right. Which is quick enough. I didn't make this racing chair. Okay. The military sponsored it for me. So they bought me. So I had a fairly decent racing chair then. So I started racing more and more. And then I realized maybe I have some talent here. And I went to a lot of track events and I did as much as possible road races and marathons that I could do. And then it was the first time South Africa was allowed into the Olympic Games. Not for sure yet, was because it was still the apartheid time. Right. And this was in 1991, 1990, 91, you know, on and off, is it can happen or not? Um, and then I, I was a student at Stellenbosch University. Um, uh, and my uh, second year, um, I decided, well, you know, it looks like there's a very good chance for us to be as part of the Olympics and Paralympic Games. And then in May of that year, which is the middle of our year there, I, I quit and I said, I just want to go travel and in Europe and do wheelchair racing as much as I could, gain some experience. I didn't even know where I was going, uh, but I had some help there. You know, I had some contacts with um, Stoke Mandeville and uh, a little bit in Holland and in Germany. Uh, so my first stop was in, in Germany. Um, and I, you know, I went basically on faith with, uh, with, with uh, finances as well. I didn't have a lot of money for this whole thing. I, had, I, I could afford my ticket and money to be there for a while, but there's no, there's no chance for me to stand hotels, you know? So I, at fr the first month I was there, I stayed with friends that I knew. And then they took me to an event, the Heidelberg Marathon. Now, I don't know, have you done the Heidelberg Marathon? I have not, no, I've, I've heard about yeah. it. So I've done Heidelberg Marathon and I'll, so the first time my international race, right? Now I was fairly okay in South Africa then already. I raced with Ernst already. And so we were neck and neck and he was still young. And, um, uh, and I went, we went to Heidelberg and there I see the guys in sports and sports. Now that was scary. I mean, I see Kenny Carnes, mm -hmm. I see Marcus Pultz. And uh, Heinz Fry and all, all these guys, all that I see in, saw in, in sports and spokes, and I was like, I was shaking. I mean, there's all these big guys, and I'm in the same race as they are, too. And so, and I sports started, and spokes is like the, the wheelchair version of Sports Illustrated, effectively. So, these are the good. biggest stars in the world, yes, yes. And I, I, I always remember, you know, couldn't wait 
long enough for that forces folks to arrive at home. And I would, I mean, that magazine will be next to my bedside for, for the whole quarter until the next one or, you know, how long it will. And then I always used to see Craig Blanchett and uh, Musa Fabadit and, and uh, Jim Knopf and all these names was just, you know, now I'm all of a sudden there. Uh, so we started the marathon, I think it was, it was uh, maybe 200 or 250 wheelchair athletes. And off we went and it started raining during the race. Um, and I didn't have enough experience with grip. So I lost, I, know, I went quite far back as, uh, at some point. And it was also, this marathon also said, I'm going to finish this marathon and I'm going to pack my bags. I'm heading back to South Africa. <laughs> it was a guy... I think it was, uh, it, it looked like a quad, but a strong quad, right? So at one point I was cruising, cruising, and he, and he passed me, and he passed me. And I, it was a huge effort for me to jump back and I sat behind him for a while. I sat behind him for a while. And I was just waiting for him to, you know, call me up front. And right. at some point, and he just said, okay, your turn. <laughs> so I went, I went to the front. And, uh, you know, I couldn't say no because this guy, you know, so I, and I went to the front and I sat there for a couple of minutes until I died. He passed me and then I couldn't I couldn't get back to him again. So, yeah, I I limped. I limped to the finish line, but I finished the, that marathon. And and uh, after that, I um, I started doing track events. And when I started doing track events in Switzerland, in Germany, there was plenty of those and luckily also i was close to sopur which is you know part of quickie right. and um they um they kind of um took me in um and and always told me okay you can go to this event and that will organize a bit for you so and that's how i basically got to start know people and i started traveling to switzerland and i thought i Start training with Franz Niedlisbach a little bit with different guys, right? Um, and at the end, I mean, I've done um, a lot of races, but I think the big trigger for me during that uh, six months was the Blumen Marathon, where I really started to know people. It was in Holland. Uh, it was a seven-day marathon, and it was all over uh, Holland. Holland, um, And it was very well organized like a tour de france but i wasn't part of a team i was just as an individual and then if you go as an individual they kind of work you into a team uh so there was the the software team and the top end team and uh amigo team and so on and so on and then there was us as well so i, I really actually found myself there um and then I had a lot of folks just inviting me to come visit them and tell me, okay, I've got a race here, come visit me. You can stay with me. And then I hopped trains and buses and stuff uh, also to Stoke Mandeville, stay there for a while. So at the end of that trip, my last race uh, was Berlin Marathon. Um, and I spoke to, uh, I, I, I always wanted to see if I can get the attention of L. Mark Line. Now, I don't know if you know L. Mark Line, he's the big, boss at um at Chopur, which is you know belongs to quickie and sunrise medical so i i i was at an airport in north germany and it was just so happened here he comes and we crossed paths and i said hey how's it going and i said you know what i was i was 
you know, so envious or so, I, I, I had to talk to you at some point before I go back to South Africa. I have this chair and he knew a, bit, a little bit about me and I'm looking for another chair and he immediately said, okay, uh, I've seen you and it looks like you've been coming along well, I'll sponsor you. So that's how I got my first, right, just a pure racing chair sponsor. And by the time, so uh, a little bit after that, when I left, you know, I had a sponsor and then they kind of draw you into the team, uh, basically more the German team. Marcus Pils, Friedan Miller, um, all the German athletes. It was just amazing. And later on, Ernst also came in, you know, he came in and, and uh, it was us two South Africans and uh, a lot of German um, athletes in the support team. Is it still like that in Europe, wheelchair racing? I mean, it seems like you, you went for six months and there were so many different races in so many different places. I mean, you're talking about this effectively like stage race that you were able to do. I mean, it just sounds like you ended up in a perfect situation to be able to race and to get better. Is it like that still? That was the golden years, I'm telling you. They had so many track events, and but so many of these track events was able-bodied events, where they always uh, had at least uh, one or two wheelchair events, like like exhibition, but also prize money events. But so, like but, Diamond League events, or no, or were no, they no, just yeah, sort of more regional? As well. Yes, that as well, but regional. Okay. Regional events, smaller events in Switzerland um, and in Germany, which was, you know, and they always had wheelchair events and that slowly disappeared, not only the Diamond League. Um, I would say things really changed earlier in the 2000s, um, early 2000s when wheelchair racing really took a kind of a, a dive in Europe, where cycling, you know, made a, a huge uh, pitch. Um, no, no, not at all. Um, definitely not as popular as it was those days. Yeah, I mean, it, those just sound like great days. And I, I've never, I haven't done the vast majority of those races. I remember Scott Hollenbeck talking about the one in, in Holland that you were talking about. And, and it just, it just sounds great. I mean, it sounds like so much fun and that you get to race a lot and get to race against the best yeah. people all the yeah. time. Yeah. And, yeah, and, you know, we, we, we had like time trials, uh, team time trials, like they would do, do in, in cycling. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, well organized, you know, and, uh, and you, they let you go on very specific times and you have a group, five guys work together. Um, at least the top four has to come in. Maybe one guy can drop off, but, you know, the top four has to be in. And uh, I just have to tell you this. So Ernst and me, we're the only two South Africans in this um in, in the in the in this software team um and the rest are germans but we were good enough to go with these guys and make you know we were racing the top end team that day actually uh and um and somehow when ernst was behind me i don't know exactly what happened and um his front wheel got stuck into my back wheel in a in a team time trial now our teammates was not happy, but you can just think, right? <laughs> so we were the black sheep there for a while. Uh, <laughs> so we, we had to we, we had to basically quit our time trial, but we we uh, it was so much fun. How yeah. much better did you get over that six month period of, of staying and racing in Europe? Oh, that, that was the biggest jump I've ever had in my in my entire uh, racing career. 
you know, because immediately I raced a lot and also I raced against, you know, all these, these amazing athletes. Um, so I slowly, you know, um, I remember my, my second race was in Bruce, the Bruce in, in, in Belgium. Yeah. It was cobblestones, all that. And, and, uh, I remember the guys were, you know, great having me there, but you know, you, I'm still way back there. Um, and just trying to finish the, the race, but you know, by the end, that, that was my second race. Uh, and immediately I all, you know, just because you're not, you don't feel so new anymore. And uh, they invite you to it. You already feel like, okay, I, I feel like a little bit more confident just to push it. And, uh, and, you know, slowly and sure, surely, you know, things just start to happen. But yeah, it, it made a big, big impact on my, my uh, performance. And was it the marathon distance you were racing on the track as well? Did you have more breakthroughs in the shorter distances or were, were they the longer distances? How did that work? Well, no, it was, it was everything. You know, I, 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 was, uh, I wasn't holding, holding back for any event there. You know, whether it was a 1500 on the track, a 5K on the road or a, half a lot of half marathons as well. Uh, and of course, uh, marathons, the big, but you know, the marathons was more big city events. Right. Uh, so a lot of other races was just smaller events as well, like the, the 10Ks and, and uh, the, the track events was, was also a little more bigger city events. Let me just ask about the track events, because yeah. the track events in some ways, you know, like a road race, if you're not as fast as people, you can see them at the starting line and then you might not ever see them again. Mm. Whereas at least in the, in the track, you can, you have a bit more perspective that you're like, Oh, okay. They, and, and, you know, they might be fast enough that they lap you. Hopefully that wasn't the case, but, yeah. but at least you're, you're in sort of in the race as opposed to sort of feeling like, okay, I'm all by myself again. Yeah. Well, that happened uh, quite often in the, the road races, you know, in this, uh, the bruise one, the bruise where you hit the cobblestones. I mean, I was, I was, I wasn't last, but I was, I was back there with, uh, and I didn't I finish by myself. So I didn't see, like you say, I didn't see anyone, but um, it, it's just, it was a passion for me. You know, it doesn't matter if I know someone or don't know someone or see someone, um, you know, the, the hospitality of the, of the friends that I made there um, was a big impact to me for me just to volunteer well you know sign up for any race you can because they invite you and uh, and I think that in, in a in a sense Cedarton also uh, developed you know the Cedarton 5k race sure I felt like you know I've had so much from uh, people on the other side of the pond you know giving me accommodation and place to stay and place to train and races to do it it kind of, kind of, sort of, you know, it, it uh, started because of that um, memories I had as well. That is interesting. So then, what you're doing now, you've had, you had this experience, and then, you know, effectively, kind of like paying it forward, that helping these other people to get a similar kind of experience. So let's get to to Cedar Town, but you came to the U.S. first. Why did you decide to come to the U.S.? You had this experience in Europe. You're from South Africa. Why did you end up in the U.S.? Yeah, and so in 1995, uh, that was 1991, my first trip. And uh, 92, so I made it 
for the games in Barcelona. And then in 93, I met Karen. And then uh, she, she was a student in occupational therapy. Uh, so when she graduated in the end of 1994, we decided we would love to go to Europe again, you know, and I, and she's never been. Um, but we started off our Europe trip to, to Boston Marathon in April. Um, and then we, I did, I did Boston, Boston Marathon. I, that was a, that was a tough, a tough one for me. Ooh. Uh, I, I was so sick after that race, totally dehydrated, but, uh, that's another story. So. We, uh, we went back to South Africa uh, for two weeks, uh, a short time, and then flew to Germany. And we met up with a friend of mine again, um, stayed in Munich for a couple of weeks. I started the first race I did with Karen then was the Munich half marathon. And Heinz was there and he, he blew us. It was ice cold the day, that marathon. It was like sleeting. But, you know, Heinz, doesn't matter if it's sleeting or snowing or tornado, it's still, the, you know, the times to go is still amazing. Um, so then we, Karen, I was there for five months. So we picked up all of my old friends and we traveled by train and different places and did the German champs. And then I was really part of the German team because I was uh, not part of the German team um, I was not sponsored by them anymore, but I was part of their the history of racing with them quite a bit. So the connections was easy to make. So, but Karen and I traveled quite a bit, and um, and end of '95 we uh, we went back home and we got married. '96 Paralympic Games in Atlanta, um, but just before the games in Atlanta, we were in Austria, the Austrian um, uh, national championships. So Karen, we were there and that's when we decided we were sitting at the side of the track. And so, you know, what a one experience or what a life opportunity is to do something like this. And, and uh, so she graduated as an OT and we said, OK, let's go somewhere for a couple of years. And then we had, you know, the UK in mind and we had Europe in mind and also America in mind. But then after that, we went to Atlanta for the games. And that's where Atlanta, actually, the U.S. came into, because we didn't really have enough experience of, um, of uh, the USA, because I traveled mostly in, in, in Europe, because things are so tight and compact that it's easy to get from one race to the other. Uh, but once we were here, um, it, was, it was kind of our decision after the, the games here. And then in 97, so we went back home after the games, 96, Atlanta games, immediately started our visa process and, and Karen's work, you know, uh, permit to work here in the US. And then in middle of 97, we moved here. So a year later, basically a year later. We were gonna be here only three years for until the Sydney games and then go back to South Africa, but you know, we're still here. You're still here, that, that yeah, does happen. <laughs> I live in Park City. And I moved here in 99. The games in Salt Lake were here in 2002. I thought exactly the same thing. I'll be oh, here really? for three years and then I'll go somewhere else. And it's been uh, 20, what, coming up on 23 yeah. years now. So, yep, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, and when we had children, you know, kids, family, then, then it's even harder to pull your roots. So, uh, and we, you know, 
since then, we moved to a smaller town, Isidro town, now a little bit bigger city, Rome, where we live, uh, but still very happy. So you're in Rome now. You're not in Cedar Town anymore. No, the last seven years we we've, we've been here in Rome. In Rome, okay, mm-hmm. okay. But Cedar Town, the whole community embraced you. I mean, you came from South Africa as this wheelchair racer, and Cedar Town is a is a nice area, but it's sort of a a quiet and fairly remote kind of area as well, right? Were you surprised at the response that you had? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's easy to drive by Cedar Town and totally miss it. Um, but when you live there and you feel the hospitality and the friendliness and the openness of, of uh, people that's, that's, you know, in the area, um, you, know, the, what, you know, what better can you get than um, inviting people from all over the world to come racing to your town and um, train for a week? You know, it's actually, you know, because, you know, I had all that time in, in Switzerland, France, Nietlesbach and Guido Muller and Ernst and Ben Lucas from um, New Zealand. They used to come visit me uh, in Cedartown. And that's, uh, you know, because I used to visit them, it was my turn to host these guys. And then we decided, okay, well, it's, it, it will be great to have a, an event before Petrie because these guys are here anyway. They come for Petrie, they stay in Cedartown, we train in Cedartown, why not have an event? So. Larry Kugler, he was the president of First National Bank in, in Cedartown at that time. And him and Dave Grove said, okay, let's let's get the ball rolling. And that's how it started. What did the people in Cedartown think of you initially? So you moved into town and suddenly there's this guy in this crazy wheelchair bike thing out on the road training. Well, what was the reaction initially? Uh, you know, people were probably just wondering what it was. And, Quite often, I people stop next to me and ask me, you know, do I do I need a ride or you know? So, but slowly um, and definitely surely over time, because I was on the road often, and I had more and more athletes there with me, um, it was you know then a wave and a honk or whatever, you know. And and, uh, the roads that I went on was um, definitely people that you know live in that area. It's not you know drive through for visitors from another area. It's only the folks that lives there that will see me. Um, so um, I knew I felt safe on the roads, uh, although I got hit by a car after um, my second Ironman, but you know, that's, you know, something just happened, but no, it was, it was definitely a, a new, a new territory for them to get used to, but um, it worked out fine. And then suddenly you had when when the event happened, you had racers from all over the place, and there were there were a lot of racers. How many how many racers did you have come to the Cedar Town event? Because it was it was what it was the five k, but then you also did like a half mile race too, didn't you? First couple of years we had a mile race and um, and the five k race. Um, the first year we had it was twenty three athletes. But it was all, all you know, top-notch athletes. It was, you know, you know the elites. Right. Uh, and then from there, it uh, evolved to a bigger event for, uh, and more. Uh, I felt like it, we, we all felt like it's good for beginner athletes to mingle with the experienced guys. So they can, you know, in, in four or five days' times, we call it the, the training camp. It was not really an official training camp. You're just there. You train with the guys. 
uh, on your own speed and, and on your own program. But in between your trainings, you share ideas, and the racing chairs are there. Um, and, and so you learn. Uh, the year we had the most was, I think we had 79 or 78 athletes. That was, a, that was the World Champs 5K that year. Uh, David Ware won, uh, it was either him or Kurt won, I can't remember now, but uh, it was it a was, uh, phenomenal event. And uh, so we had a whole lot, but also smaller events as well. For people who don't know, this is around the Peachtree Road Race. Peachtree Road Race is a 10K in Atlanta on July 4th and is what, 65,000 racers, but also, especially at that time, attracted all of the best wheelchair racers. So having Cedartown as the training camp with these two races, and then Scott Hollenbeck also would do his track meet in Atlanta. So for athletes, you could go and spend a fair amount of time in Atlanta and get just some great competition, which which is a little bit harder to to achieve. Did you know what you were in for in terms of organizing this kind of an event? You know, at first, definitely not. Um, but um, the team was amazing. You know, the team uh, that volunteered was absolutely magnificent, and it wasn't only uh, working on our own event it was working with becky of shepherd center mm -hmm. and at that time also um that the nicotunas 10k in remember the nicotunas 10k sure. in long island yep. so it was like the triple crown if you win uh uh, uh 10k first and then on 5k and then p3 10k and then after that it's the track meet so it was a lot of racing in in a week and a week and a half time uh, and that triple crown was a was a tough one to to beat or to, to get uh, i know ernst got it one year he won all three and i don't think anyone ever won all three in the same year um so but no definitely didn't didn't realize uh it was going to be such a hit you know and and Sirton actually he, he if you Ride, drive Sierton in a car or in a racing chair, it's going to feel like, man, this is going to be a tough one. It's not going to be fast because it's so technical, so much turns. But we've done nine, 940, 941 times on a road race, you know, which is very technical. That is really super, super fast. So it was a, it was a drawing point as well because, you know, guys could do really fast times in, in, uh, in this 5K. But, you know, there was that, uh, uh, um, that ability you need to be able to handle your chair well. A lot of accelerations, good handling skills. And I think sometimes I think Seattle is, is a fast event, maybe more because of the every time when there's a, a turn coming up, a 90-degree turn, you don't want to sit in the back. You want, always want to be as far as possible in front. So always someone force the speed to get to that uh, turning point at least top three or top four and the rest of the guys will just follow so yeah no it's 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 a nice one well it's a nice one and i remember i mean it, it got my heart going that's for sure because it's sort of that drag race kind of thing off the start like with mm. sort of like little rollers, some yeah. little hills and then that right turn in front of the lake 
Mm -hmm. kind of think I, I want to make sure I'm not on the outside of this pack and ending yeah. up in the lake, which would be a scary proposition. And then, then suddenly you go, you go up that hill. And I remember watching recently watching Daniel on that hill, the year that he and Aaron Pike raced that I think he broke the world record for the 5k that year. And I've never seen anybody climb like that. You've done a lot of work with him. Is he the kind of athlete, Daniel Romanchuk, who's, who's kind of blown your mind? Oh, absolutely. Especially on that day. I mean, he was on fire. I mean, it, it, to me, it, you know, I don't know how fast he, got, he went up that hill. You know, that, you know, that after the second turn, you go up that hill. I would go, if I push my heart out, I would maybe 10, 11. I think he went close to 15 <laughs> on a climb. And he did. I was like, ding, 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 ding. I mean, he killed it. He went so fast. And also, he's got good, good skills, you know. He's got very, for a young athlete, he's got really good turning skills. Uh, no, he, he went fast. He really went fast. Yeah, I was, I was uh, surprised, but also not too surprised because I know he could do it. I knew he could do it. That was amazing. And, and it's showcase. And, and it's also, you have to understand too, just the competition that he had because Aaron Pike is a great racer, but it seemed like Daniel went up that hill and he put 50 meters or more into Aaron in like 20 seconds. Yeah, it was like immediate, yes, yes, yes. But that, it was also the year that there was a $50,000 prize uh, bonus award for breaking the course record at Peace Street. So Daniel was, we trained quite a bit here before. Uh, I mean, he got warmed up well, you know, acclimatized for the weather and we did some good hill work. Um, and uh, he was he was ready for it, and he blew it in at a part at, at Petrie. He did he did uh, um, was the low eighteen. It was I think it was a low eighteen. Yes, a low, and we and fast times for us was eighteen forty five somewhere there, and he did a low eighteen. Like 18, 15, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think under 18, 15. It was like 18, 10, between 18, 10 and 15. That was that was ridiculous. Peachtree is is a fast course, mm. but it because it has some big downhills, but it also has some significant uphills. So yeah, yeah. It, it evens out. It's not like one of those courses that you can just maintain a high rate of speed throughout the whole race. You have to you have to earn yeah. your speed, that's for sure. What for you, you've always been one of those guys who who looked at the minutiae of things as well. Has that always intrigued you where you're trying different tires on the downhills, you're trying different equipment? Has that been part of the appeal and, and even from working with an engineer to build your very first chair? Well, it was uh, I, I, I always like to fiddle and I always tell uh, uh, I always come back to the house and I'll tell Karen, I'm, I've just found this, the perfect situation. And then tomorrow I will change again. So I ba I'm basically almost never happy with my position, but I'm happy, but not totally happy, right? So you always try to work on something better. And, uh, and I think that's maybe part of my success uh, is because, you know, there's no... Um, right or wrong in our sport because you know there's so many different variations in disabilities and setting positions and 
asserting positions is is crucial um you know because you know it's all about the the aerodynamics and the uh, efficiency in your pushing technique i mean you can feel like you're sitting great but when you're comfortable but in a in a in a active position when you push you might feel like you're not going as fast as sitting a little bit maybe a little bit more uncomfortable uh, it's going to hurt your neck more, but you might go faster because you're more aerodynamic. And there's my cell hook is a good example of that. I don't know how my cell can sit in that position with his, his back so low and so flat with his head tilted up all the way and not have issues. I think he mentioned it was, that was tough for him when he, you know, he went a little bit more aggressive in his, in his seating style. And he is now more aggressive than he i mean you've been one of the top guys and then with this new chair this new carbon fiber chair that he built it's actually a more aggressive i mean it's almost like his chest is pretty close to being on the tube yeah so it's almost like he's lying on his chair yep yep his turn is close to the main the main uh the main frame of the tube but yeah, back to your, your point of testing stuff. I always love to try different tires, and d- uh, different wheels and uh, test, you know, ceramic with, uh, without ceramic. And always, when I do tests, I always like to have two sets of wheels right there with me. So I always change it with the hope the conditions wouldn't change. You know, I would go with, say, Victoria uh, speed tires and I would um, have on one set. And then on the other set, I would have, say, continental podiums. And I would do a roll test without any pushing or anything. And I would jump over or get out, put other wheels on, use exactly the same position. Don't try and change your position. Use exactly the same position. I mark my first couple of rolls where, I, where I've done three rolls. And I mark all three, and then I use my next set of um, tests, another three with a different side, you know, tire or wheel or whatever, and mark those and just compare it. You know, it was always just interesting to me. And somehow you always gain a little bit of confidence with what you're happy with uh, and what feels faster to you. It might not be really a faster tire, but, you know, you felt like you've done your homework and you're confident in that. So when you go into the race, um, you, you might feel like I have a, a little bit of an edge on someone else that only come in, you know, they just have the, the equipment there and never really, you know, look at it as a, as a, a, very, a variant in their racing. Well, like Peachtree can be such, Peachtree was such an important race, but the final downhill of Peachtree, especially now, right? It used to finish in the park and now, now it kind of finishes more on the road but you've won Peachtree six times and, mm. and a lot of that race can be getting off the top of that final hill. And, mm. it, you know, I remember you talking about getting the perfect tires effectively and, but also testing it huh? on that road, which was the, which is dry getting on the roads in in, in atlanta yeah, can yeah. be a little bit scary so to be able to do that testing mm-hmm. for that final downhill what was that like well you know peach street a separate center is great in in uh preparing us uh before peach they would have a bus there two shuttle buses 
and one would be in front that will have a lot of cyclists there with us and they would go with us on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning very early. So we had opportunity to test it, but also just the experience to race it gave me a lot of, you know, I started to know where, you know, the potholes, where the crucial points was. I, I remember the first year I won it was, um, uh, uh, I knew the last downhill is you shouldn't really push too much in the last downhill, right? You should make use as much as possible of coasting. So I, Sol was in, uh, in the lead and Sol was clearly the favorite, he, he, he got away. And on the last downhill on 10th Street, I, I, I was in the top position as low as I possibly could. And so I saw he started pushing. And, uh, and I wanted to push, but also I had to, I had to tell myself, I listen, stay down, don't push. And slowly and surely, I, I, passed, I passed him. And uh, it was just unfortunate for him that the, the timing was just so that, you know, I, I could pass him before. And I never, I never pulled up. I just stayed down, never pushed anything. Just by coasting, I, I passed him. Um, and that was, you know, uh, uh, experience there also and, and containing your emotions. Uh, the, another year was me. Um, it was me, uh, uh, Kelly Smith, Ernst and maybe Kerr together to the finish. It was a big group to the finish line. Right. And, and we kind of, we didn't go all out down. No one really wanted to take the lead on that last downhill. And uh, we were all together, kind of, you know, no one's, you know, kind of, everyone's kind of holding back a little bit. And close to the finish where it dips real quick. Holding back on that because nobody wanted to go to the front so that then, yeah. that, then the others could get in your draft and effectively and slingshot past you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, st I, I just composed, you know, stayed at my speed that I wanted to. And then just before or at the, at the down crest of the last downhill, I pumped it maybe five or six times as hard as I could. And I quickly, as fast as I could, I went down in a coasting position and they all kept on pushing. And I just stayed, and they came up to me, close to me, but I was already then started going speed again. And then I, I just stayed down and I wanted by this much, but staying down saved me that day. It really saved me that day, yeah. So, you know, that's when you, when you live in an area where you can train on it and you can, ex, you know, experience the, 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 the course in a training uh, session where you can more build, you know, a psyche around it. Right, but it sounds like the biggest thing for you, biggest thing in your success was that you stuck with your plan, that you said, no, I need to stay in my tuck, that's actually faster. Yeah. And, and you could stay in that plan without... You know, in the midst of, of some of the best racers at the time, mm -hmm. some of the best racers in history. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that borderline, you know, that borderline. Where will I, when will I start pushing and when will I stay down? So, so you, it's, a, it's a fine line and it's easy to, to when you see something happens next to you, just when they push, just to start pushing as well uh, with them. Can and you then describe you just that to people? Because, you know, for in wheelchair racing, you only have one push ring. So effectively you only have one gear and there's only so fast you can go. But what was your thinking with regard to like, what kind of speed could you get up to before you were, uh, you know, and, and still accelerate? I knew I could go up to 25, 
uh, on, on a downhill, but then after that, because it, the acceleration is gonna be quicker going down into a tuck then. If you go up to 25, it's not gonna be help you much to go, try go, go up to 28. And I know some guys can push to 28, but when, it's, when it goes down really quick and, and uh, you have to use aerodynamics and rolling momentum, it's going to help you more, and that's that's the difference there. You know, that's the difference where you where you really can make use of of your positioning and uh, your you know your helmet style, whatever you you worked on, and of course you know your arms, where you put your arms and your hands. Um, don't by accident touch the brake. That can happen as well because your hands are all in that in that area, um, and then you just have to hope you're going to hit that that finish line nice and square by by peach tree <laughs> because there's there's that that timeline which it's a it's a hump it's like a little speed like it's a little speed bump <laughs> um and uh, we always get airborne there always get i always feel like if i if i'm I have my three wheels safely on the ground after that i'm happy and how fast are you going as you cross the finish line? I never check how fast I go there because it's, you know, uh, I, I just know my top speed uh, during the race is earlier on on the long downhill, which is in the low 40s. Uh, I think behind Franz Nietlesbach, maybe I went one year close to 44 or so, uh, which is super fast. And he was, I mean, him and Kelly and Ernst, they were, they were the guys that can go fast on that downhill. Yeah, and I just have to get as small as I can. What motivated you to start building your own racing wheelchair? And it's not, I mean, it seems like you've been, you've been fitting people for, for wheelchairs, variety of wheelchairs for a long time, but what made you think you wanted to build your own chair? Well, you know, in, in uh, the early 90s, my brother in South Africa, the two of us, we, we built racing chairs there. On, uh, because I used to sell chairs for Sopur in South, South Africa. Um, and then the reason why we started building chairs there was we were very happy with the product, but the exchange rate, you know, was not in our favor and it just got more expensive and expensive. So we decided uh, we're gonna do our own thing. So we, we just, we start our um, um, uh, company also able able sport is my company that, that was able wheelchairs and uh and um then when i moved away i was always you know i was gonna race for three years here in the u.s and go back and we was gonna continue the business and i never went back um so we sold the business to someone else that's still doing some work with it but more you know bikes but here in the u.s um I think I will, you know, I like to, to fiddle with, you know, the stuff. Um, and then uh, during the, uh, the, the, a certain time in 19, I mean, in 2019, 2018, 2019, I did a lot of work for, for Top End. I sold a lot of chairs and I started having the airlines contact me for, for uh, um, damaged wheelchairs. And then I decided I'm going to make a box so people can travel. So I don't want to see all these bro broken chairs right. that no one can use. And so I started doing that. And then I said, mm, okay, maybe I can make a wheel box. I made a wheel box and I started making a roller. So I went start from the back end and then um, 
then I th thought, okay, maybe I can try a little bit of welding because uh, I start, you know, making my, well, uh, getting my own supplier for wheels, but I want to make the hand drums for the wheels. So I got a welder and then slowly that evolved to um, maybe I can make a racing chair. When I realized I could do the welding and then I actually said, you know, okay, I've come this far. I've made so many things now. Maybe I can try a racing chair and that's how it starts. So, and I always would uh, add the, you know, the spark in my head that n never really went, you know, like a, a lightning bolt. Uh, but, you know, it just happened slowly over time. Slowly with time. And then you raised that chair. That was the first one, I believe, right? You raised that chair in Boston this past year. Boston, yes, this past year, yes. And that was great. I was, I was happy. It carried me to the finish line safely and, and uh, treated me very well. Well, you still went fast, too. I mean, this is not just a matter of just finishing. I think you went, what, 142 or something like that, which yep. under not perfect, not ideal conditions in Boston is certainly a fast time. I, I think uh, the two of us, we were talking about, I know we were talking about the day before about the, the marathon. And, and I think you mentioned something like, if uh, I said, you know, if I can have an okay race, I'll be good. And uh, maybe you said, maybe like the low 40s, the 40s. And I thought, oh boy, yeah, I think he's, he's pushing the bar up too high for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't, I don't think I commented too much there, but I was with a good group and uh, with Tyler Byers and with James Ambeda and with a couple of fast guys early on. And uh, so I was, I was very happy with it. It looked like it was great. How much of this stuff transfers? So your son just won the state championship in the 800, the 1600, and the 3200 at the Georgia State. Uh, Georgia State Championships and, and was actually voted what Georgia State Track Athlete of the Year, I believe, right? How much of this, how much of that transfers like your experience as a wheelchair racer and then his experience as a runner? And obviously there's got to be some DNA, you know, some hereditary kind of stuff as well. Well, I'll put it this way. I wish I could run like him. <laughs> yes, no, I know. I, I This is... Um, He's a hard worker. Simon is a hard worker and uh, he's got a great coach. He's got very well uh, supportive family. Uh, but, you know, he, he started when he was young. When, when, um, when I was doing Ironman and triathlon events, they used to do triathlons with me and uh, they, they were, you know, I would do a race and they would do the, the race as well in the Iron Kids triathlon. Um, and slowly he, um, he developed his skills and his endurance working with a coach um, that is tremendous, um, Coach Jay. And uh, they have a great relationship and he's been um, slowly progressing, you know, over the years. But this, this year, this season, uh, we were just talking this morning, you know, uh, earlier this year, he thought he would never... Uh, do a sub for 10 mile now he feels like it's possible he's, he's done it for 12 and he's going for it in two weeks time in Nashville there's a big track meet and he feels confident that it's, it's possible and uh, he's, he's going to go for it so but yeah it's um, it's been fun to watch him and uh, I'm glad to see someone also in the family 
my oldest son is the same. Um, he just doesn't have the, 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 uh, um, he doesn't like pain too much, you know, for running. He wants to, uh, it's got to come easy. Okay. But he's very talented. And then little Sarah, the youngest one, you saw her in Boston. Yes. She's a little yes. runner as well. And she, she cannot wait, wait to work with uh, Simon's coach as well. So, but we, we're trying to, you know, keep her just, you know, a little bit longer. Having a little bit more fun and not getting too serious too, too yeah. early. How does Simon ask you questions? Because obviously you have a lot of experience on the track, a lot of experience with training, but it's also, it's, it's similar, but yet it's different. So does he ask you questions for your expertise? Well, he, he, a lot of questions. And he's very, very, he asks great questions and he always would say, you know, how did that race go? You know, say for instance, I was close to a win or I had a win or I struggle. What happened during the race? How did I um, handle, you know, a flat tire or, you know, not maybe specific to his uh, racing schedule, but just, you know, racing is racing. Um, uh, and, and then he would just, you know, a lot of times I can see he brings it back into his own world and, and use it to his, um, his advantage uh, at times. And I would imagine, so you talk, it's interesting you talk about the flat tire, right? Because you put out some videos showing people how you could change your tire in your racing chair in under a minute. So you weren't effectively out of the race as a result of a flat. Yeah. That took a yeah. lot of work to, to perfect that, didn't it? Yeah, I, I did. I changed a lot of tires. You know, initially when I started racing here in the US, I used a lot of Panaracer and, you know, tires that can flat easy. And then I, 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 you know, I, I had to make a, make a point of training it. And, and, and I remember one time I, I was ready for it. I mean, I can have a flat tire. So somehow I put a 650 as my spare, right? And so I you're running 700 it. wheels and you have yeah, a 650. Yeah. So it's a too small. So I had a small tire and a big wheel. And I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't get this tire on. I, I stretched it beforehand and everything. And it was already glued used a couple of times. Eventually I'm out of my chair. I get out of my chair. I stretch it in between my shoulders, still getting, and then I realized it's a 650. <laughs> that was a big blunder. Oh boy, yeah. But yeah, I could change the tire pretty quick. And I've had some races where I, I was still top three because I could change my tire um, fast enough. What is the message? Like looking, looking at your son, I mean, this has to be exciting in that you you have been such a great athlete over the years and to see him reaching the top of the state is, is there any message that you give to him moving forward in terms of like this is the nugget that i want to give you that can be helpful in your success in the future well right now uh, you know he, he probably needs a, a lot of nuggets um but i don't want to be too much of uh my influence would right now be Simon. You've you've done you've won those three races. Like I told him a couple of weeks ago after after state, stay Simon. Okay, don't change into being getting a little bit because I know I was there. It's easy to get cocky, right? And then your your uh, the, the 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 more cocky you get, the harder you fall. So you know. 
and you can, you know, at some point you can feel like I'm invincible, you know, and I'm sure after that three event, you felt like I'm invincible, but you have to understand, you know, I'm only human and I'm racing against guys that's just as hungry as I am. They work hard and, uh, and I don't want to be known as the guy that's, you know, winning all these events and, you know, chin up or, you know, you know, having a, uh, a bit of an attitude about, you know, other people or myself. Um, yeah, definitely just be yourself and be Simon. <laughs> so work hard, but stay humble. Stay humble. Yes. There you go. Uh, this is great. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, this has just been so cool to talk about your journey through wheelchair racing and and your interaction with the community and then and then in some ways you know passing the baton and and watching your son and potentially your daughter as well uh get to get to do some of the same things that you've been doing so thank you so much for sharing that with us that was a lot of fun thank you yeah this is awesome so thank you to all of you for tuning in i hope that you've enjoyed it if you have please tell your friends please like us please follow us we will come back with another great story next week, and we would love to see you here. So we'll see you back next week.